Welcome to the Theology Pugcast, and this is C.R. Wiley, and I'm joined by my friends, as I am every week. I'm the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester, and I'll let my friends say who they are and where they're from. I'm Tom Price. I'm a systematic uh, theologian and uh, Christian ethicist, teaching uh, adjunct at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and senior fellow of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Okay, well, great. Well, it's a beautiful uh, spring day. It almost kind of feels like summer, and we're here in the in the uh, corner pug, deep in the recesses of uh, <laughs> one of the spare rooms here. So maybe the sound quality will be a little better today because of that. But we've got our drinks, and we're ready to roll, and today is Glenn's day. So, Glenn, why don't you tell us what we're talking about? Okay. As someone who does a lot with worldview, most of what we see out there is a discussion of non-Christian worldviews versus the, quote, biblical worldview, um, or a Christian worldview, or something like that. What I'm going to be talking about today is what I see as the kind of de facto worldview that exists within the evangelical church in America, which is, I would argue, really far from the biblical worldview. First of all, a couple of definitions. Uh, your worldview, I mean, there's all kinds of analyses of these, but what, what I would say is your worldview is what you think of as common sense about the world. And in practice, your worldview is exhibited primarily in what you do, not in what you think or what you say, and specifically in what you do by default. Uh, what do you do when you aren't making active, conscious decisions about, well, I really ought to do this, so I'm going to do it? Where do you just sort of land? Uh, that tells you what you're really thinking deep inside yourself. That's what really guides your behavior. So the question is, what is the de facto worldview in, among uh, evangelical Christians today? I would argue that there are two big themes we can talk about here that really differ from what you see in a, a fully or biblical worldview. The first, although it may seem strange to say it, is that we have really a secular worldview. We have effectively secularized the gospel. And this shows up in a bunch of different ways. So let's start with the definition of secularization. There's a lot of ways this is defined, but one of the key definitions, it seems to me, is the idea that uh, religion is okay, it's perfectly fine as something that's private, that you keep to yourself, but it shouldn't play any role in public life. And if we take a look at what the average evangelical thinks about the gospel or how he presents the gospel or something like that, what we get is that the gospel is about going to heaven. It's about getting your sins forgiven so that when you die, you go to heaven. Uh, it's essentially a very, very personalized way of approaching Christianity. Um, a, a Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. And relationships are things that exist between two individuals. So the very idea that the gospel is primarily about going to heaven, and maybe it's got some implications in some other areas, notably personal morality and maybe a few hot-button issues like abortion, what that really is is a privatized vision of the gospel, which means that it's thoroughly secularized. Because again, secularization is the idea that religion is something that is private, that you can be as religious as you want to as long as it's a privatized faith. 
So the gospel ends up being reduced to something that affects us in eternity, but has very little effect in terms of how we live our lives in the here and now. Now, if we contrast this with what Jesus had to say about the gospel, he always and consistently presented the idea of the gospel as the gospel of the kingdom. And, well, you know, we sing in our hymns, well, what is Jesus Lord of? Well, he's Lord of all. And the question that I have is what is not included in all? You know, when you think about it, it should include every aspect of our life. If Jesus is Lord of all, then he's Lord of not just our personal salvation, not just our personal morality, but our families, our communities, our jobs, our recreation. Every area of life is something that is supposed to be under the authority of God, under the authority of Christ. Yet how often do we actually think about the gospel in those terms or present the gospel in those terms? How often do we really see this kind of fully orbed vision of a life integrated under the authority of Christ? You, you bring up something really uh, significant there, Glenn. Uh, there were a lot of things that were significant, but one of the things that uh, you noted at near the end was um, our inability as uh, secularized evangelical Christians <laughs> To think about institutions uh, like the family, even the church. Uh, church often is, is uh, conceived of as a voluntary association. In other words, uh, we allow sort of a kind of a Lockean, you know, modern definition or a libertarian definition of institution uh, institutions to define for us what what the church is. Uh, and it's really difficult, I think, for, for many people to get out of the mode of the kind of personalism that you, you noted. In other words, not a religion, a relationship, that kind of thing. It's as, as, though, it's as though individuals and relationships are the only things that are real in, in the world. And nothing else is real. Everything else is socially constructed or, or is somehow artificial in a bad sense or in, in a less than real sense. And consequently, we can't we can't think about uh, you know those things in those terms. Yeah, and this ties in with the essentially completely voluntaristic idea that we have of the church, uh, that the church is an institution of people who are in it by choice, right? Um, because they have chosen Jesus, and then they have chosen this particular church. It's essentially a consumeristic mentality. Right. Right. It's as though the church it never existed before they showed up. And, and, it, and it's interesting. There's a lot of things. I, I want to return to a few other things there. But it's it, interesting. Uh, Remy Bragg actually pulls up an interesting point when he talks about literature that shifts. And, and you could almost say the conception of the church that shifts with modernity. Whereas old literature often talked about your participation in a grand epic. Mm -hmm. um, the, the modern literature shifted to our adventure. Yeah. So we, we're, we're kind of choosing the path to, to experience and be fulfilled. And this almost plays itself right out in the conception of the church. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I think that... <clears throat> You know, the, the danger in all of this, the problem is that there is an element of truth in this. Yeah. Um, you know, Christianity does depend on having a relationship with God, and that is, in a sense, something that has to be done individually, but it involves a lot more than that. And the problem is in what is omitted 
in the, this overwhelming emphasis on volunteerism and things like that. It also has practical consequences, yeah. though, and the, the, the practical consequences are tied in with the second theme that I wanted to bring up, and we can return to whatever we want to as we go along, but the second theme, and again, this is even stranger than the idea of a secularized gospel, is that we essentially have an anti-supernatural vision of the world. Right. Yeah. Um, where you see this, I, I suppose the easiest pl- way to illustrate this is to consider that the average American Christian prays something like four minutes a day, according to Barna, and that includes saying grace at meals if they do that. Right, right. So quick grace. That that is a right. demonstration. That's very different than you experienced here recently with, with <laughs> your, your family from Colombia. That's right. <laughs> It's a four-hour prayer. It's a short prayer. <laughs> yeah. And, and th- that is, it seems to me, a conclusive demonstration that we don't believe in prayer. Because if we believed in it, we'd do it more. Right, yeah. right. And these two trends tie together, this anti-supernaturalism and the secularism. I'm not sure which comes first, but they tie together in things like the way we think of church growth. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. measure the church... You know, the success of a church using the ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash. (laughs) Or if you prefer the three Bs, buildings, budgets, and butts. And and that is a purely secular measurement. Right. Um, We... Now, though people will try to justify it by appealing to the Bible, like they'll they'll say, "And five thousand were added to their number that day." That's right. <laughs> and so that's why we should be concerned about you know numbers. Well, and and there is a way of doing that that's appropriate in a way that isn't. But I think more often than not, people are more concerned with the cash part of it, frankly. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> um, but, but, then, but then along with that, where does this lead? When you combine these two things together, the question is, how do you grow your church? Right. Well, what you do is you go to management, media, mm-hmm. and marketing consultants, yeah, and you yeah. ask them what to do, how do we do this, how much, given our congregation's history, how much yeah. money can we raise... All of these kinds of things. We rely on consultants who take insight from the secular world and use it to try to build the kingdom of God. Which is, it's interesting because my, my wife once suggested this. She said, you know, theological consultation. But I told her there'd be no, there'd be no one after it. Because nobody's looking for theological yeah. insight in how to grow the church. They are going to yeah, these yeah. alternatives. Right. And, and yet Jesus gave very precise directions to the 12 and to the 70 about how they should be going out to make disciples. And in the places where Christianity is growing the most, what you see is them following those directions and relying heavily on prayer. Well, that, that's key. I'd like to take a, take a look at uh, the supernatural element uh, yeah. in particular right now. Uh, the latest issue of First Things, which, is, which isn't uh, posted online yet, I mean, is that new, uh, has a, uh, an article, kind of a lead article, and, it's, it, it, I, I, and, and that's why I was just looking at my phone a minute ago to see if I could find the title. But it was something along the lines of um, something from the back row. And the idea yeah, yeah. Is, this, is there's this photographer who had been a Wall Street uh, sort of a futures trader, I think. Hmm. And anyway, uh, he lived in Brooklyn, very nice apartment. Kind of his life was was he was well set. But he decided that he he would he was interested in kind of uh, exploring parts of the world that he just didn't get to. Yeah. He wanted to go to parts of the Bronx, 
and see what was going on, you know, sort of firsthand. So he did that, and as he went as he went to these to these communities, uh, not just in the greater New York area, but mm. across the United States, he went to Appalachia, he went to West Virginia, he went just all over the place. Yeah. He discovered that he discovered uh, first of all he was an atheist, but he discovered that that sort of his his kind of his frame of mind was one of I can manage this. I've got you know enough sort of control. But he kept coming up against people who didn't have that. And, and if if I I think I read the same article. Yeah. It just came out right. like yesterday. Right. Is, it, is it the same one where he was talking about the the arena from which he was in? Usually the elites' interpretation. Yeah. Of these people had no clue actually of what it was to walk yeah. and be around them. Yeah. 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 It was it was a very moving article because. Yeah. You know, I, I spent some time as a young, in my teenage years, as in the projects, and, and I was on, you know, in a foster home for a while. And so the people he was encountering and talking to brought back memories of people I knew. Yeah. Very similar. I, I actually started to cry when yeah. I was listening, when I was reading this. <laughs> but he, he comes, he talks about how these people really have no hope of controlling their lives, and it drive and there's there's this, there's a consciousness of spiritual reality that he didn't possess and he said there are two institutions in these areas Mm. that are the institutions that are the lifeblood of of these people from the back row and he's talking about back row front row front row are the eager beaver kids who always raise their hands and and go to the elite schools when they graduate from high school coming out of these you know rust belt towns yeah and then the people who stay because this is home yeah they're the back row people and what he discovered, the two institutions were McDonald's hmm. and the church. Wow. <laughs> and not just any church. <laughs> well, that's it. And he said, yeah. and by the end of the article, yeah. he said that he believes in God because of those people and what he saw in their lives. Because, And he's, ta- he's talking about prostitutes, he's talking about drug addicts, yes. he's talking about yes. all these people. Like He, he introduces one, was one woman... Who he sees, she's in the Bronx, and she introduces herself as a beautiful prostitute and child of God. <laughs> Marvelous. Now, now she wasn't trying to imply that it was okay to be a prostitute. That's right. She was just simply saying, "I am in this really difficult situation." You know, I'm, I'm putting my gloss on it, but yeah. but but she's basically saying, "God is all like God." You know, I'm, I'm, I mean, any time I'm turning a trick, I could lose my life. They, yeah, you don't find atheism under those bridges. That's right. That's, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly his point. Yeah, but but it gets back to the supernatural element. These people believe yeah. in the supernatural, yeah. and I and if you want to, the further you get away from the illusions of your of control, mm-hmm. the closer you get to the reality of the supernatural. And I think I think one of the interesting points of that is what you often find, especially because of the rich impact of the charismatic movement in this yeah, arena, right. is because one, several of the things they have not lost are part of the the reality of the supernatural. You could say they they carry on some of the enchantment. We may say they carry too much. Right, right. Nevertheless, they don't lose those aspects that allow that kind of life and life situation to be properly illumined. Where, where a lot of mainline who have moved very far from being able to do it only looks at the material end of that, mm-hmm. only looks at dealing the dealing with the sort of uh, socioeconomic, yeah. and completely rids itself of the kind of spiritual antenna to to actually That's because those mainline that. people really believe that they control the world. Yeah. Well, let let's add on top of that. Let's bring it back to the evangelical churches. What kind of people are you trying to attract to your church? Right. 
you're typically going to want to attract middle or upper middle class people or upper class if you can pull it off. Um, you're looking at people who are pretty comfortable. Yep. Those are not the people who know they need God. They are not the people who know that they need the gospel. And, but heaven knows we don't want the prostitutes or the drug addicts or things like that. What would people think? It's yeah. a bad witness. Right, right. But those are the people that Jesus hung out with. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, when you are kind of in that environment, when you're in that world, like, you know, for years I, was, I did urban mission work in Boston. And I remember there was a, there was a, there was a man by the name of Jim who was from the West Indies, and he was a very likable guy. And, uh, but he was a drug addict. And so Marlon and I brought him into our house. He lived with us for a while. And so the predictable happened. He, you know, every once in a while things would go missing. Yeah. The microwave oven, the bike, whatever. And and then, but and you know, he was he was doing. He'd pawn him off, and then he'd he'd uh, get high, and then he'd feel just total remorse. And he was a very easy guy to forgive for a couple of reasons. One is. He was genuinely remorseful. And yeah. He would come back. He would just be crushed. He was so sad, so <laughs> sorry. And then the other thing was he was likable. Yeah. And then the third thing was he was one of the best house painters I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd say, Jim, okay, you know, part of your uh, your penance. penance is paint that room. <laughs> you know. But anyway, the, the 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 straw that broke the camel's back was when he stole the church offering. I said, Jim, that's it. You're on the street. Goodbye. And it was, that was that, that was the bridge too far. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, but good news is Jim's doing fine today. He's he's I know, you know a believer and and he's clean. Wow. Good. But um, but anyway the uh, but the thing about that was you know that whole that whole experience was it's messy. Mm-hmm. You know when you're dealing with people who have got these mm-hmm. kinds of problems. And, and, and there is a genuine need to make sure you don't get sucked in. I mean, I'm, I don't mean you need to get crazy and sort of just Not throw yourself yet. in with this stuff completely. But if you're going to be, if you're going to connect with this stuff, and believe me, these people, you know, I remember Jim saying, prayers works, prayers works. <laughs> yeah. He was he was a big believer in prayer. And, uh, but anyway, I, I think I got my point across. Yeah. So... I think, you know, if you dig in, you can find both of these tendencies. I just gave a couple of examples, but you can find both of these tendencies very deep in, um, you know, in evangelical behavior, both on an individual level and on a corporate level. Um, You know, we tend to buy into what Jacques Ellul called the political illusion. You know, that if we elect the right people to the government, it will solve the problems. Um, we tend to get really discouraged over short-term things like one election cycle. Yeah. Uh, we tend to, you know, uh, well, you can keep going on and on and on with these kinds of things. We, we forget that Scripture says that Jesus is the Lord of history, that the kingdom of God extends into all areas, that his will is going to be carried out, that, in fact, all things do work together for good to those who love God, even if it doesn't look like they're doing that at the time. There are all kinds of things that, that, that we ignore or we forget because we have a vision of the world that is profoundly this-worldly. We have measures of success that are profoundly, well, societal, secular. 
So if we go back, when we think about evangelicalism, is sort of the arrival of evangelicalism as sort of, uh, you know, uh, comfortable, you know. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, you know, not always been the case. I mean, if we that, go back two or three generations, that's right. there was a different kind of, it was more of a hard scrabble thing. Yeah, and, it, it, and you think of some of the big, fig, you know, the big, you know, depending on where you're locating, you know, evangelicals and evangelicalism, but I mean, at least in terms of the, the American brand of it, um, you see that really the, the, the kind of movements that grew out of the big revivals with their social concern, the Great Awakening, right. which happened to be the, an opposite situation in which the church became stagnant and it became such that it, it, was, it, it compromised covenants. And so you basically had a lot, you know, the, the loss of, of belief within church membership because it was tied to taxation, all these other things. And so you saw a lot of people move outward and start to, to, to call for, for repentance, faith, and kind of a, a vibrant, embodied uh, Christian faith. But I think that's already way down the line where they had already, you know, the, the historical movement had already given itself to the conditions of secularity. Um, I mean, we could go back. We've discussed it in, in other episodes. But I think one of the things that's interesting is you do have this odd mix. And this always comes with, with the, this kind of secularization. Is you have, on the one hand, an odd dualism going on. And in the other hand, you have a strange monism. And what do I mean by that? The monism is sort of the naturalism that we get, that the holy, this worldly. But it becomes because you have this kind of odd dualism. God is so cut off from the rest of reality or so within it that uh, reality you know this worldly reality is really the whole game mm-hmm. and because of that the dynamics are with are either in history itself and therefore our our place within you know finding our place in that history or they're so removed we bear the whole burden mm-hmm. of pushing history along and so it's what I think some, I don't know if it's Smith or Philip Reif, who've called sort of moral therapeutic deism. Yeah, it's Because you have your, yeah, Christian Smith, because you have your deism on, on this one level, and yet it, it, it kind of turns over to the Christian life as fundamentally relational in, this, in the therapeutic sense. Right, right. Um, and it does have sort of a moral edge to it. It mimics kind of classical evangelical religion yeah but it's really very far removed and I think this is what has increasingly replaced yeah and it, because they grew so closely together they're hard to distinguish I, I think people are having almost an impossible time I think part of what we've been doing is trying to to show the classic Christian vision that the historic evangelical, view was linked to and how that does distinguish itself from this kind of, I think another one called it Augustinian naturalism, at least in oh, the reform world, yeah, yeah. in which the, it, it's, the kingdom the kingdom is so this worldly that it doesn't have a, a transcendent center and origin, center and end, and yet on the other hand it becomes so transcendent that uh, you leave this world completely behind. Right. Yeah. One thing that I think helps is if you think of this in terms of Venn diagrams, um, oh, yeah, those are great. <laughs> between, between, I mean, uh, between the vi- just think about it in terms of of the creedal terms, the visible and the invisible. That's right. Okay. In the classical Christian position, the Venn diagram would have the two overlapping, maybe not one hundred percent, but substantial overlap between yeah. the two. Right. With the invisible probably being the the bigger circle. Right. And and the point being that the visible world 
and the invisible interpenetrate. Things that happen in the visible world affect the invisible and vice versa. The obvious place to see this would be in things like, you know, uh, medieval understandings of demonic magic or, or yeah. biblical ideas of possession or angels influencing the world or, for that matter, the incarnation. Mm -hmm. um, but it extends well beyond that. This area of overlap between the visible and the invisible is the area of meaning. It is the area that right. we have been talking about right. so much in these yeah. podcasts. Right. Meaning is found where the visible and invisible overlap. Right. Yet in our world today, among evangelicals, the degree of overlap between the two is minimal. Yeah. Which which gets rid of sacraments. It get, you yeah. know, we're left with ordinances, not sacraments. I mean, we can go on, on and on and on, and on in terms of how this spells out, spills it out as we work through our practices and our thinking. Right. But we need to we need to recover. I think really that degree of overlap between the visible and invisible. Because if we don't, we're left with something that is very definitely sub-Christian and that really offers nothing to the world around us. And I think that is the. That is the the dis, that is actually the, the call of the moment, and I think what what you're seeing is kind of uh, you know a, you, the end of a road, and there's kind of three ways to go. There are more, but there are three. One is the sort of just following the secularization trend and everything along with it. We see that that happening and, and giving right. a Christian shape to it, right. an evangelical stamp gloss. Right. Then you have. You could almost say four roads here. Then you have the sort of reactionary propositionalists of last century, that right. kind of um, what people think of as orthodox Christianity, but really it's already a modernistic yes. in, right. a perversion of classical evangelical. Well, then you have this other one, which we'll, we'll talk a little uh, next time, like uh, uh, James Davidson Hunter, um, who follows this sort of George Lindbeck neo um, liberalism, or what do they call it? Post-liberalism, yeah. which they, they their turn is to to history itself as the replacement to the classical Orthodox vision, which we're talking about, and that's a view that 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 tries to answer this problem and and make the problem of God's presence located with within the dynamic of of history and its unfolding. So history, rather than a metaphysics of creation, yeah. becomes. The vehicle, and this is sort of this was started with figures in theology like Karl Barth, sure. and so so which God's being is in becoming. So right, and, and right. of course he he qualified himself, but by the time you get to Jungel and several of these, um, on Moltmann and the rest, God's being almost is becoming, yeah. and it moves in the directions of yeah, process thought, and therefore guys, yeah. are uh, the human the human um, the human task. Of kingdom building is is sort of uh, is is changed in it, in its meaning and, it, and again it becomes one that that, that almost um, divinizes historic process yeah and so like with Hunter it's not it's not the individual it's actually this this long matrix of history that that we have to kind of get in the get in the right place of you know be on the right side of in order to yeah, be right. trans transformative it's hegelian i mean i would argue yeah, yeah. and then there is this classic christian vision though not stamped merely by just a return of the past but a retrieval of those rich resources and i think we've been talking about that when you when you understand creation the 
proper way. It's itself sort of um, connected to the visible and invisible and the place in which the invisible attributes are clearly seen. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you could use sacramental language like the patristics did for that, or if you're uncomfortable with that because of some of the history, you still see the connection. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, then it's the incarnation, and the incarnation is not merely this the kind of... Um, you know, the center point of history becoming basically divinized, but it's the place at which that sacramental vision has has been reestablished and placed on its on its mm -hmm. on its uh, next step to its fulfillment. Um, and so, therefore, bread and wine, baptism, become actually the the center points for how to read the right relation of God with the world again in light of Christ. So it's, it's expansive, it's yes. not restrictive. Yeah. And beyond that, along with the sacraments, mm -hmm. we have things that are sacramental in this world. Right. Because right. of the overlap between the visible and invisible, much of this world is assigned to something that goes beyond it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think this is where, and this is going to be the challenge for the kind of work we do, is this is where I think the historicists have been three to four steps ahead of us. Yeah. Because they've recognized, you know, coming out of that, they've recognized the culture-building pro uh, project as so central to that. Um, as a matter of fact, they make culture yeah. the, whole, the whole game all the way down. Yeah, right. Um, and so that, that's really where, where I think um, for those concerned about that task of the kingdom and of course you do have the also a big split there because they tend to be moving in a direction that talks more of the transformation of created order yeah. than of the continuity yet fulfillment yeah. Yeah. yeah well to extend from there to the idea of culture the Nancy Piercy uh, and earlier Francis Schaeffer had this um, concept of what they called upper and lower story thinking. Technical term would be the fact-value distinction. Right. So that the lower story is the world of facts, it's empirical, it's yeah. all of those kinds of things. The upper story is the world of values, it's anything that's not empirical, and in a sense it's not really real. The, thing, yeah. the only thing that's real is the world of facts. And the interesting thing about this is that so just let me interrupt yeah. you. So, so the values are subjective. Values are we, subjective. We project those onto things. Right? Yeah, they're okay. subjective. They're um, they're things like ethics, uh, which right. are, are not matter or energy, are not empirically verifiable. Religion, aesthetics, those sorts right. of things. Right. Now, the one thing that you're not allowed to do in the traditional formulation of this mm -hmm. is to have values interfere with facts. Right. Values cannot explain facts. Facts can explain values. So you can explain, for example, love on the basis of biochemistry. Right, right. Okay. But you can't move in the other direction. The interesting move that's happened recently, and this is all tied to this, is that culturally, the priority is inverted, at least in some areas. Yeah. So that you can't use facts to overrule values, but you can use values to overrule facts. And this gets us back to our, our, our sort of recurring sort of you know LGBTQ thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So, so there's something going on in the culture where, where values, your self-image, those kinds of things overrule empirical facts. Which is why people who are in this sort of historicist priority to yeah. culture yeah. thing, the so-called progressive evangelicals and people like yeah. that, yeah. are 
reassessing or reevaluating things in light of the felt values of people in our culture today, which then become authoritative over scripture or become the gatekeeper to scripture. Which makes me wonder if, if that wasn't the agenda all along. Yeah. You know, that, that basically this whole fact value distinction was intended to sort of get us to the place where we're in charge. And it's almost, it's interesting how they do it because it's almost the way that some of these, in, you know, if you think of it in sort of consciousness within the sciences, it's sort of what you have is, it, with historicism, is you, you don't have ideas behind everything, right? Ideas are, are, are somehow the manifestation of history and, right. and becoming. Right. But it almost functions the way in which consciousness does and the mind does. Um, in, in biology for some of these thinkers for which it's an epiphenomena. It's an yeah. outgrowth of right. purely material right. um, yeah. and, and it, you know, beginnings and causes. But once it emerges to that point, it becomes irreducible at that point. Interesting. And so therefore it is able to transcend yeah. the, the biological dimension. So we transcend. We transcend and we direct our own purposes here. It's, it, it's a way getting back to, to Descartes after Hegel in a way. Um, and so you almost see this with historicism and, and culture, right? You have, you know, it's, it's just like Hunter will have criticized the idealist notion of historical orthodoxy of trying to say that that there's something more primary than, than, than material. And yet he doesn't want to go to the, the liberal experience where it, uh, the, the liberal emphasis on experience alone. So what he wants to do is talk about this way in which, you know, culture transforms by the, you know, the full processes of culture, which give, give rise to culture, which is sort of a consciousness that has the capacity, therefore, to, to transcend the material. Yeah. The, the irony here, from my perspective, is that when you look back at the Council of Trent yeah. in the 16th century, yeah. Trent said that tradition is an equal authority to scripture, and actually, I would argue it said that tradition trumps scripture because tradition is the guide to interpreting scripture. Right. Yeah, yeah. Culture for these people has replaced yeah. tradition. Yeah. It is yeah. the thing that is a an equal source of authority and That's actually right. trumps scripture because culture tells you how yeah. to interpret it. And we're seeing that more and more even in evangelical circles. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. uh, one of the more disturbing things I've seen. Getting back to this fact value distinction, there are you know you know, back in the day when, you know, the Ptolemaic vision of the cosmos with this sort of the you know geocentric understanding mm -hmm. of things. Occurred. There, there were, you know, observations of the heavens that were sort of anomalous. They said it didn't seem to work. Yeah, yeah. And they would come up with all sorts of interesting mathematical formulae to sort of explain why yeah, this yeah. was happening. But then somebody would come along and say, "Well, you know, if it'd just be a lot simpler if we put the sun at the center of things and everything would work." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know, getting to this, getting to my point about fact value. I, uh, when I was at the University of Idaho, I brought this up. I said, you know, you know, you, there are a lot of folks who love to make this distinction between facts and values, generally in order to leave room for themselves to kind of just do what they want to do. But there are there are points at which we see these un sort of uh, you, you, th these realities that seem to dictate to the values uh, these facts which are are not value neutral. So, and I use an example. I said. I'd read something in the Wall Street Journal about motherhood, about the politicization of, politicization of motherhood. And the research 
has demonstrated, and, and this is just my paraphrase, so you know, you, people can go and check this out to see whether or not what I'm saying is, is accurate and a good representation of what, what I read. But what I read was that the, the, the life outside the womb of, of, a, of a newborn uh, is much more like life inside the womb than we ever realized or we ever knew. In other words, there are certain biochemical and neurological things that are going on in terms of a child's development that can only occur in the presence, close proximity to the biological, that's his key, biological mother. And this has been demonstrated through you know, observation and scientific, and sort of the scientific method being applied. So which means that if you love your child, you really need to be in the presence of your child. In other words, for a mother, if she loves her child, she can't just turn this child over to the daycare center or the state or whomever. To, you know, sort of like you know when we when we read the Republic and we see that yeah. you know Plato says, hey, what we can do is we can just take a baby from the mother yeah, and just yeah. sort of throw it into the into the common pool of children who are being raised by the community, and yeah. it won't have there won't, won't be any sort of negative repercussions. It produces sociopaths. Is what <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah. That's what, exactly it. So there. Are, my suspicion is not, now we've crossed the line into my suspicion because what yeah. I'm about to talk yeah. about is not yeah. something I would read about. But my suspicion is many of the problems that we're dealing with today are outworkings mm-hmm. of uh, uh, you know, this, this desire to make men and women the same and to remove children from the presence of their mothers as soon as we can. Yeah. Yeah. But if you love your child, then as a mother... You know the way you. In other words, you have to conform to the facts. Yeah. You can't. You're not free. You know the values and the facts are not separable at this point. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's helpful because I think that's a that's a real place at which the consequences of losing the proper ordering of things starts to impact the wider culture and create the you know. The conflicts and contradictions that you see see all over the place, and I, I've never seen it in my own lifetime as uh, at such a, high, a fever pitch to deny yeah. obvious. Re- I mean, obvious yeah. reality. This isn't simply interpreted reality. I mean, this is this is the the flesh and bone side of the fact. Yeah, right. um, it, it has become uh, so severed uh, fact. Fact and that it has become, and again, we always, right. you know, but all the way back to Kant and other places, right. we suspected that would happen. So we, you know, we've been saying for a very long time. But they would always tell us, you know, oh, this is a slope right. argument. It doesn't. Yeah, yeah, this is how you direct your own ship. You know? <laughs> Some slopes are slippery. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that—that's what I meant when yeah. I talked about values now overrule facts. Yeah, yeah. You know, the the subjective, um, the. Uh, non-observable yeah. uh, overrules the objective and the observable, mm-hmm. the empirical. I mean, it's... Yeah. Uh, but the, where, where all of this ties back together is within evangelicalism, mm. uh, you know, we're at a point where the, the gospel, as it has been presented, has little to speak to these issues. You know, if, if, if now, if that's not the real gospel. That's the problem. Right. Yeah. Well, here's my here's here's a here's a bomb. I'll throw <laughs> <into the> room. <laughs> sure. I'm not optimistic about the future of evangelicalism. Yeah. 
Yeah. In light of these things, I think it's doomed. Mm -hmm. Classical evangelicalism has been defined by, I believe, well, there are at least four different things that, that were part of it. Uh, one of them is an emphasis on conversion. One of them is an emphasis on the cross. One of them is biblicism, emphasis on the Bible. And the last one is an emphasis on social action, the idea that the gospel needs to be incarnated in society and we need to push biblical ideas uh, as what is fundamentally the best for society. Of those, the one that sort of survives more than anything else is conversionism. We don't hear that much preaching of the cross as we used to. Um, Biblicism, the Bible is turning into a wax nose that you can reshape any way you want to according to the whims of culture. And heaven knows we don't want to impose our views on anybody else. That's right. That's right. So we, we've actually lost... In- inclusivity. Is right. <laughs> we, we, we will impose that. That's we, right. That's right. Yeah, we, we've ended up in a situation where classical evangelicalism is, um, politely, it's moribund. Yeah, we're in a de- we're in a bad spot. Yeah. And, and I think, again, the things we've hit on over and over again, but I, I really think where that dividing line has been really sits on that issue of, of creation. Yeah. Created order, moral order, and the sacramental, the real presence vision that is at the heart of that. Because that's the way to get the proper, it's not idealism, we're dealing with, with the, rela- the, the relation of the invisible and visible in a, in a distinctly Christian way, which actually criticized the, the Hellenistic world and refashioned those things in a way and after all of that refashioning, just to kind of move away from it as though that was an outdated cosmology without actually making an argument for it, but really presuming it, and presuming it on a very, uh, very flimsy philosophical case at that, um, I think that you think of all the things that, that Christianity uh, evangelicals held in place. They presumed the, the, the Christian vision because that's the one they were planted in. And once, once that was, was uh, presumed over and over and over again, yet it was continuously be eroding, yeah. um, now it's eroded and they, they don't have anything to presume anymore because, yeah. I mean, other than the alternative. Yeah, I, I'm talking to young guys today yeah. and I feel like I'm a, that, they're, that I'm, a, I'm a complete alien to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm finding that in the classroom as well. Yeah. I mean... It, Probably the most shocking thing I've I've seen is that my students no longer recognize Princess Bride references. <laughs> <laughs> now you but know that it's over. It, even it's bri- over. even Bride references are pretty much good. <laughs> yeah, <a> bride <laughs> princess. <laughs> um, but but yeah, it, it's I'm it, I'm I'm feeling the same way. It's getting harder and harder to find those points of contact. Um, getting back to the earlier point, I was at a at a meeting. And, uh, you know, regarding social institutions and someone was making an argument, believe it or not, for the ordination of a guy who struggles with pedophilia. And I said, no, no. I shouted no across the room. I said, we're here to do more than shepherd the, the sanctification of some guy who's struggling with that particular sin here's into your, the ministry. Here's your th- therapeutic. We, that's right. Now, we have an now ministry is a therapeutic that's outlet. There you go. That's it. Yes. And, and, and all the young guys thought I was wacko. <laughs> so, well, that's what we're dealing with. Yeah. 
It will, and, and it will. It's only a step or two from the normalization. Normalization yeah. of that as well. Right. Right. So once again, culture ends up being the gatekeeper to everything else. That's yeah. it. It's That's it. it's tradition revisited. Well, on that happy thought, <laughs> we're getting close to the time we need to wrap up. Uh, anything you guys want to share? Anything, Tom? And then we'll go to Glenn. I just think this is uh, this hits the key of the matter, and I think we need to revisit it from a lot of angles, especially how it touches on things. Um, although it, you know, it, it definitely leaves a kind of a dark cloud over things. I, I do believe in the triumph of grace, and I think we've been equipped with the the vision and the resources to to not lose hope. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I would I would say that. You know, when I take a look at Christianity in what is now called the global north, Europe, Western Europe particularly, and America, Australia, and so on, things are looking pretty bleak. Right. Uh, the fact of the matter is we are so far from, from the biblical, a truly biblical worldview, biblical vision of the world, a world that is embedded in eternity, and where there is this kind of overlap that we talked about, that... Well, once you lose that, a move towards secularization is inevitable because there's nowhere else to turn. But when you look at the gospel in the rest of the world, when you look at Africa, when you look at South Asia, when you look even at China, despite the persecution now, um, right now Christianity in terms of percentages is growing faster in Iran than it is anywhere else. There is so much hope, but it isn't found where we are. And what we need to do is to recover a more biblical vision of the world, a better understanding of the relationship of the visible and the invisible that will give us a base from which we can rebuild. So that's, that's where my mission and my hope is. Yeah, you noted Iran, and the, I just saw something here the other day where the authorities in Iran had actually admitted that Christianity is growing there. That's one of the reasons they're clamping down. Right, and that's what happened in China, too. That's right. Clamp down on us and we'll grow. There you <laughs> go. Yeah, it's one of the few things that Tertullian said. I'll agree with. That's right. But, but uh, sir, well, to wrap up, now you know why we do this podcast. This is our, our, our little light in the darkness here. Mm-hmm. At least that's how we think about it. And we really do uh, believe in the providence of God and the, and the, and the triumph of Christ, you know, and the lordship of Christ. So I hope you don't take anything we've said uh, to be a, a reason to be completely discouraged and just give up. We 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 uh, tell you we, we advise you not to do that. Absolutely, <laughs> we're going to help you not do that. <laughs> but at the same time, we need to be real about the situation right. that we find ourselves in in the West. And you know, I remember, and I'll wrap up with this thought. I remember, you know, the first missionaries to Africa to, and, to, and to India and other parts of Asia, you know, they would labor there, you know, for years and see no not fruit see at all, fruit. not see a single conversion. And we just kept throwing missionaries at them. And now we're seeing the fruit. I'm afraid that's what we have in the West now. We need to rededicate ourselves to reaching the West as though it were a mission field. Yeah. And, and not just simply a marketing problem and we're enough generations in where we can do that because that's right. we're pretty much having no clue whatsoever about what we're talking that's right, about. That's right. That's right. To, to, to reaffirm that if you talk to Christians in Africa today they will say yeah well yeah we need to be sending missionaries yes, to America however 
you guys need to remember that it was the missionaries you sent here that laid the foundation for what we're seeing in the explosion of the gospel today. That's right. And it's, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the scripture, cast your bread upon the waters. You know, that's what we're seeing. Yeah. You know, uh, the blessing of those missions yeah. uh, is now being felt here in the United States. Although it's not welcome places in places like the United Methodist Church. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but anyway, anyway well, we could keep talking, but That's why don't right. we wrap this up? Anyway, thanks a lot for, for joining us for the Theology Podcast, and uh, come back next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye now.